Farming is a gamble, and the farmers aren't the only ones who pay the price. The U.S. consumer is at the mercy of all of these factors because so few people are producing so much of the food. Hey, I'm Karen, and together with my husband, I spent over a decade researching and learning and building our small farm through lots of trial and error, successes and failures. I went back to school to get my degree in horticulture to help our farm business, and now I want to pass all that knowledge on to you. Because I firmly believe that self-reliance is empowering, and that everyone, whether you've got a five-acre plot in the country, a half-acre lot in suburbia, or a windowless room in a downtown apartment, should just grow something. Hello, my gardening friends, and welcome back to the Just Grow Something podcast. I hope you have all had a fabulous week in the garden. We got some much-needed rain here today, and it looks like we have some more chances over the next few days, which I find super exciting. The other thing I find super exciting is our first patron over on our Patreon page. I would like to welcome Beverly as our first seed patron. As a patron at the seed level, Beverly has access to exclusive content on the Patreon page, including posts and videos. And of course, my absolute gratitude for her support. So thank you, Beverly. If you want to find out how you can support this podcast through a monthly contribution, head over to patreon.com slash just grow something to check out all the support levels and the benefits to being a patron. And I will put a link to that in the show notes. So one of my goals with this podcast is for us all to grow a deeper connection with where our food comes from. And that includes me. In an effort to shed light on some of the most common misconceptions we may have revolving around our food systems, I wanted to dig into the subject of agricultural subsidies. Now, I live in the U.S., so the information I researched was mainly U.S.-based. I would have loved to dig into other countries and their subsidies, but this is not an easy subject to tackle, even at a high level, because of the myriad of complexities and the number of different programs. And I can tell you, the deeper I dug into it, the more confused I got and the less sure I was about even sharing this information with you. But I'll do my best here to share what I've learned and maybe help give you a better understanding of what and who is being subsidized. So a little history on U.S. farm subsidies. Since the Great Depression, government payments to farms have come in many different forms. There have been direct payments, subsidized crop insurance, different types of loans. Some of them still go on today. Some have come and gone. Some are permanent. Others are temporary. It's been a whirlwind of fluctuations. Originally, the subsidies were created to help farmers who had basically been dealt a total double whammy, the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression. The programs were designed to pay farmers to make sure that the supply of certain commodities did not exceed demand, which would have driven prices down and made poor farmers even poorer. It aimed to ensure an adequate food supply to the entire country and to support farm income without 
overproduction. The government subsidized farmers to keep some of their croplands out of production and then also bought excess crops when there was more supply than there was demand to keep prices from bottoming out. So in current times, there are two arms of the U.S. Department of Agriculture that are responsible for many of these programs. They are the Commodity Credit Corporation, the CCC, and the Federal Crop Insurance Corporation, the FCIC. So the CCC provides direct aid to farms and works to control the prices of commodities in addition to some different conservation programs. The FCIC works with private insurers to run the U.S. crop insurance program. Both of these agencies came out of those programs that were started in the Great Depression. So here's where it gets a little ugly. From 1996 to 2014, the CCC had a direct payment program for farms. Farms received payments based on historic yields of their particular crop, regardless of how much of a crop was actually produced. The payments didn't consider whether or not the farm actually had any losses in that year. So you can see how folks would be a little upset about their tax dollars going to farms to supposedly help them stay afloat when they actually hadn't taken a loss in the first place. And I think that's where concerns over farm subsidies really began. But the 2014 Farm Bill changed that. It repealed the direct payment system. The 2014 bill required farmers of a certain set of crops to choose between two different types of subsidy payments. There's the agriculture risk coverage, where payments are based on a commodity's yield and any potential revenue loss, or the price loss coverage, where payments are made to protect against price decreases of a commodity. So the subsidies under both these programs are only made for specific types of crops. These include wheat, corn, grain sorghum, barley, oats, and rice, soybeans and other oil seeds, dried peas, lentils, chickpeas, and peanuts. So those who don't grow those crops um, can choose to enroll in the crop insurance. So by repealing the direct payments and three other types of farm revenue assistance, this was supposed to provide limits on what producers would be eligible for and to base that eligibility on actual production and actual losses, which to me makes a lot more sense. If you look at the portion of farm income from government payments um, from the very beginning of these programs, it has ranged from as low as 1.4% in 1949 to as high as over 40% of farm income in 2000. And I know there was something about 2000 that made it a particularly rough year because every statistic that I saw revolved around this super, super high um, payment rate in, in 2000. Now, keep in mind, not all farms are eligible for this, and not all farms opt to take these subsidies. And there are some who only take it as needed, not as a portion of their annual income. There are, however, those that always take subsidy payments. 
So let's jump from the risk and loss coverage type subsidies to crop insurance. The FCIC works with private insurers to provide federal crop insurance. The insurance is designed to protect agricultural producers against losses resulting from price and yield fluctuations. Private sector insurance companies sell and service the policies, and the USDA's Risk Management Agency, which oversees the FCIC, develops and approves the premium rates and administers the subsidies. These subsidies are in forms of paying a portion of the producer's insurance premium. So basically, there are three different types of coverage for crops, and it's all very nuanced, but each type of insurance covers the farmer for different types of losses, and there are limits on the types of coverage that one can take at a time. So as you can tell, farm subsidies have become very complex since the days of President Hoover and his direct cash payments. So why is all of this such a big deal? Well, number one, it's agriculture. These are the people who are feeding you and I and our families when we're not producing these things ourselves. It would sure be a shame if the majority of the 2.1 million U.S. farms disappeared simply because they couldn't pay their bills. 97% of those farms are family owned, and most of them focus on just one or two commodities. There aren't many large farms that focus on diversified crop production like our small farm does. In the grand scheme of things, we are micro-sized. We're not even a blip on the map. But what about that other 3%? 3% of U.S. farms are actually not family-owned. They are large corporate farms having an income of a million dollars or more each year. These are the big vegetable and dairy mega farms. There are some very, very large family farms too. About 7% of that 97% that are family-owned fall into the very large category. Which brings us to the non-commodity crop producers. So also in the 2014 Farm Bill were new programs for dairy producers while repealing other programs and disaster assistance programs for livestock producers. The Margin Protection Program for dairy producers is what is in place now. And it offers insurance coverage based on the average actual dairy production margin. So the difference between the milk price and the average feed cost. And that protection starts when the, that margin falls below $4 per hundred weight for a two-month period. In case you're wondering, a gallon of milk weighs 8.6 pounds. So dairy farmers don't receive any monetary protection until their profit margin falls below $4 for 11 and a half gallons of milk, give or take unless they pay premiums for better coverage at margins that can go as high as $8 per hundredweight. Now, keep those numbers in mind. We'll get back to those in a second. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
So what are the pros and cons of the U.S. farm subsidies? Let's start with the pros. Number one, someone's got to feed us, and our food supply needs to be protected from damage from the weather, economic crisis, war, all those things. Farmers are vulnerable to large swings in commodity pricing, and they often rely on loans to get through the season, waiting until after harvest to be able to pay those loans and reap any potential profit. This puts them at the mercy of the commodity brokers who trade futures contracts that agree to buy or sell a future harvest for a specific price on a specific date. This can either be great for the farmer who locks in a price early and wins out because their costs were lower than the futures price, or it can destroy a farm because the weather wrecked havoc and their costs were sky high, but the futures price was low. Crop insurance subsidies help protect their livelihood from swings like this. Second, Crops and livestock are susceptible to diseases, weather fluctuation, plagues of pests, you name it. There have been times when farmers had to slaughter animals because drought caused such a lack of feed, they had nothing to feed them. Floods, tornadoes, hurricanes, all responsible for devastating crops and impacting livestock. Even if you locked in a decent futures price, you may not have anything to sell through no fault of your own. As gardeners, we know if you lose a crop, it's not simply a matter of working harder to make up the difference. Once it's gone, it's gone. But for farmers, that means their income goes with it. And finally, there are factors that are so outside of what a farmer can manage, we don't even think about it until it happens. In 2020, we saw an international pandemic that forced the closure of meat processing plants. This forced hundreds of family farms that contracted with large companies that own these plants to scramble to find local producers. That took up the slots for smaller farmers who normally took their animals to those processors. If you didn't already have your date locked on, you weren't getting into the butcher in 2020. That created a flood of farmers trying to sell their livestock for pennies on the dollar and a drastic drop in the price farmers could get for their livestock. And all of this was happening at the same time that meat shelves in the grocery went completely empty because supply had run out and the processors still weren't open, causing the retail price of meat to go through the roof, further putting pressure on local suppliers to provide more meat, all while grain prices were going up. <laughs> Nobody, nobody could have seen any of that coming. Farming is a gamble, and the farmers aren't the only ones who pay the price. The U.S. consumer is at the mercy of all of these factors because so few people are producing so much of the food. And that is where we start to get into the cons of subsidies. Despite the fact that there are 2.1 million farmers in the U.S., it's only the largest of those farms providing the majority of the food. As a result, the top 10% of farms in this country received 78% of the subsidies from 1995 to 2019. The top 1% received 26% of the payments. That averages out to about $1.7 million each. And these are the farms that are the least likely to go out of business in these scenarios. 
If you look at the crop insurance program, for example, the top 10% of farms received average subsidies of $29 per acre, where the average for all the other farms was $12 per acre. Want to hear something even more shocking? In the period from 1995 to 2014, 50 people on the Forbes 400 list of America's wealthiest people received farm subsidies. Let's focus on that for a hot second. Let's go back to our dairy farmers. The average cow in the U.S. farmed for milk production produces just shy of 20,000 pounds of milk per year or around 2,300 gallons. Now, let's say the farmer has a minimum insurance at $4 per hundred weight. If milk prices drop dramatically, the best a small dairy farmer can hope for at that level is to make at least $800 per cow per year profit. Now, most small dairies have around 1,000 cows. Some have as many as 5,000, others only a few hundred or less. The mega dairies can have over 15,000 cows. So the small farmer with a thousand head, which to me, even that seems like a large number, but that's what's considered small for a dairy. So if the small farmer with a thousand can hope to make about $800,000 in the worst case scenario, if the prices drop out of the bottom of the milk market, and they have the minimum amount of insurance. Now, that sounds like a lot, $800,000. But remember, the insurance is only for the difference between feed cost and milk price. It doesn't consider any other costs of operation, like paying farm workers, the milking equipment, barn costs, utilities, other insurances. And we all know that on a small scale, those things cost more in relation to the income you are generating. In reality, the average dairy farm owner makes around $44,000 a year. That's a lot of work for 20 bucks an hour. And around here, the last time I checked, the last remaining dairy farm in our county was only milking 60 head. So it's easy to see why the small dairies are closing down and the mega dairies are taking over. And here's the flip side to that. The very subsidies that were put in place to help the small farmers who were suffering from poor markets and a poor economy seem to be helping the large corporate entities get larger. And the mega dairies can afford to pay the insurance premiums to bump their minimum coverage up to that $8 per hundred weight and hedge their bets. So if you lost track of the math, which is very easy to do in this case, the mega dairy with 15,000 head would be producing 300 million pounds of milk per year and at $4 per gallon would pull in $12 million or $24 million at the $8 level minus the premiums. So the uber-large corporate dairies get to take advantage of the economies of scale, paying less per pound for feed, mostly by producing their own, and reducing their overall overhead due to that economy of scale, while taking advantage of the subsidies that were originally designed for the struggling small farms. 
all while the little guy decides it's just not worth it and closes up shop. So what does it boil down to? Do we need farm subsidies? I say yes, if we want to see the small U.S. farmer stick around. But I think there needs to be limits put in place about at what level these subsidies can be received. Because a lot of the time it looks like just another case of the rich get richer. And for some farms, it's the only way they survive in some years. Most developed countries have farm subsidies, but developing countries do not. This makes them less able to compete on a global market, and it means those farmers in those countries have a harder time eking out a living. It also means that there's less food available globally during food shortages. I don't have the answers to any of this. Most of this is so far above my pay grade, I can't make heads or tails. It's a deep, complex issue. I do think, on one hand, Farm subsidies stabilize commodity markets and can help low-income farmers and assist smaller farmers when disaster strikes. Our small farm actually received disaster payments last year during the pandemic based on loss of marketing ability of our hogs and our chicken eggs and delivery of our produce due to COVID-19 restrictions. It wasn't a huge amount, but it was just enough to keep the farm afloat until our sales channels could open back up again. And I know there were so many farmers that needed that disaster relief that have never taken a subsidy in their life, us included. But on the other hand, there are a lot of wealthy farmland owners and operators receiving these subsidies that are only using them to increase their own wealth. Is that the best use of taxpayer money? And doesn't that impede a true free market economy where supply and demand dictate how much a good is sold for and how much of it is produced? It's tough. I just caution people when they see something highlighted in the news or on social media that purports to be an expose on a farm destroying a crop or having to put down livestock claiming that they're doing it for the crop subsidies or the federal insurance monies. It just doesn't work that way. But I also think it's, in, it's unfortunate that grains in this country are so heavily subsidized over fresh fruits and vegetables. It means grains are less expensive than the fruits and vegetables that should be making up the most of our diets. I think that needs to be looked at a little bit more closely, too. I hope this episode gave you a little bit of insight on a very, very complicated issue. I know farmers and have listened to farmers who do work with these programs, and they can't always properly explain them themselves. They get professionals to help them. I'm certainly not the expert here, and there was a lot I had to leave out from my research. I will leave a slew of links in the show notes to educational resources and a few opinion pieces that may help you dig deeper into this topic if you wish. So, Stew on that over the weekend, and I will catch you next week for another Garden Talk Tuesday episode. You've just listened to another episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. Don't forget to download the episode after you've listened, rate and review us in your podcast player if that's an option, and follow us on Instagram at Just Grow Something Podcast. All these things help gardeners like you find me and hopefully join the Just Grow Something family. Don't forget to send in those gardening questions through a voice message at the link in the show notes or via email to grow at justgrowsomethingpodcast.com. 
Until next time, my gardening friends, keep on cultivating that dream garden, and I will talk to you again soon.